Hello and welcome to LedgerCast. My name is Brian Krogsgaard. Today we have a special guest that's going to talk to us about markets, but also uh, is fulfilling our request that we had uh, last episode about our uncertainty on the world of, of uh, decentralized finance or DeFi. Louis Abood from Wire is here. Hey, Louis. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to great to have you here. So, Wire for folks that. Uh, want to follow along while you're listening, you can go to sendwire.com. That's W-Y-R-E. So wire with a Y. And Lewis runs Wire Capital as well at wire.capital, again with a Y. And uh, Lewis, can you give us an overview, I guess? Uh, let's start with Wire Capital, and then we'll dig into the uh, SendWire service that you guys have. So what is Wire Capital? Sure. So so Wire Capital is the the funds management arm of Wire, which is a payments business that's been in the, the crypto space since 2013. Um, Wire Capital is a long-short fund making long-term uh, investments, you know, analyzing the fundamentals of different cryptocurrencies, smart contracts, platforms, DeFi protocols, uh, companies in the space that do uh, infrastructure all the way down to, uh, you know, uh, user facing applications. So we're really looking at the whole industry, uh, trying to invest for the long term um, in basically the the whole market, everything from Bitcoin down to seed stage equity. Uh, so so Wire Capital was started in uh, early 2018, um, and uh, we started it as a separate business arm of Wire Inc., uh, which was founded in 2013 as Snapcard. Back then, Snapcard was a merchant processor and multi-currency wallet, kind of like a, a BitPay-style business uh, that basically allowed people to spend Bitcoin either out of a browser extension uh, or they also had like a point-of-sale uh, terminal as well and all these funky things that were probably a bit before its time. Um in uh, late 2015, the company pivoted a little bit towards using crypto liquidity to facilitate international payments. Uh, and basically what that looks like was, uh, you know, if you wanted, if there was, for instance, like a Chinese merchant selling goods on Amazon or something to that effect, uh, after they sell their goods for USD, they then want to repatriate those funds back to China uh, and so they can use Amazon's kind of uh, built service to get charged 3% and wait X many days. Or they could use us. So basically what we would do is something pretty simple along the lines of buying Bitcoin in the US and selling it in China. And then using a local payout partner to deliver the uh, CNY to the end customer. And uh, by using crypto liquidity to facilitate those payments, we can do them much faster with higher working capital efficiency. And actually much cheaper because uh, we do a lot of pay in to uh, company, uh, sorry, countries that have capital controls, for instance, uh, Brazil or China or uh, various other uh, jurisdictions. And uh, generally countries with capital controls have some kind of uh, price arbitrage with uh, crypto. Uh, that means we can charge our customers very little moving money around and still make money. Uh, so we, we built that whole payments business up. Uh, which was really, you know, using crypto on the back ends, uh, crypto liquidity on the back ends, but the, the end users didn't really need to know what was going on. Really, they just thought they were sending money around just like uh, they would on TransferWise or through their bank. Um, and uh, really, in, in sort of mid-2018, we started productizing that infrastructure to uh, basically offer it as an out-of-the-box solution to different crypto companies that don't want to have to 
build up all of the infrastructure required to run fiat payments, which is, you know, licensing, uh, you know, as an MSB and an MTL, getting banking and lots of different currencies, uh, dealing with compliance, KYC, AML, all of that stuff. We basically uh, turn that into a product that can be uh, implemented within different applications uh, as, as a service. And what that means is that uh, really entrepreneurs that don't have a lot of resources can um, put a fiat on-ramp into their wallet or their DEX or their DAP or whatever application. They can basically build a whole cryptocurrency exchange that accepts fiat uh, using our uh, service on the back end. So why is very much like a payments company that straddles the, the fiat and crypto space? You know, we understand crypto very well, but we can also deal with uh, the regulated aspects of, uh, you know, dealing with fiat money. Did you personally get involved in crypto first or finance first? So I, I joined the company when we launched the fund. I wasn't here prior. Uh, prior to that, I was at a uh, equities hedge fund in Australia. Uh, so I have a sort of investing and markets background, but I've been interested in crypto personally uh, since sort of late 2013 and that that bubble there started trading crypto or Bitcoin in 2014. And, uh, you know, in the ensuing bull run, I was basically getting more and more excited about what was going on in the space. And uh, it, I I, uh, I knew the, the CEO and founder of Wire. Uh, he was uh, old friends of my cousin and uh, whenever I had a sort of question or whatever about crypto, I would direct it towards him and we got into some you know, pretty long conversations over email talking about things through 2016 and 17. And then uh, basically we decided to launch Wire Capital as a way of Wire capitalizing on its position in the industry because, uh, you know, doing what we do. We get a lot of commercial intelligence around uh, what's going on in the industry, how people are performing, uh, you know, what commercially relevant outcomes are occurring, uh, and being able to invest with that knowledge is is really useful. Yeah, that's cool. Um, let's, I guess, dig into a little bit of the DeFi stuff. But before we do, I want to ask one more question about uh, your capital management side of things. You said y'all are long short. Uh, are you mostly looking at things from a macro perspective are you typically long biased and short hedging or are you fully speculative both directions so we're we're definitely long biased in the sense that we're bullish on the industry and on markets yeah. in general yeah. obviously uh, launching in february of 2018 it's hard to sort of be be long biased right uh, yeah. so we've been net short plenty of times over the last uh call it 16 months mm-hmm. um you know, given what's going on in the last few months, particularly, uh, you know, our, our plan was basically when we when we thought that we were in a bear market and on the other side of the cycle, we would be happy to short a, a broad base of assets in the market with a decent amount of conviction. But when the bull market started, uh, you know, we always had the view to have zero short exposure uh, effectively through the whole bull run. So, you know, we, we'll hedge a little bit. Uh, but no matter how bad we think an asset is structurally or fundamentally, it's it's hard to maintain a conviction short position through a bull market because the market's still very immature, assets are still very correlated, um, and often the the lower quality assets can rally just as hard or harder than the higher quality assets. So uh, the way we think about shorting is basically happy to do it in a bear market and pretty hesitant to do it in a bull market. Uh, eventually, 
I think the way to run a long short fund in crypto will be relatively similar to how you do it in the stock market, which is where, you know, you hold your longs in your conviction, high quality assets, and you hold shorts basically until the asset goes to zero, right? Um, Low quality crypto assets have a tendency of not going to zero, not dying completely, surviving until the next cycle, and then, you know, springing up 100x just like you know the party that was never over uh so really it's 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 quite different to how you would manage exposure uh if you were investing in more sort of mature markets uh but yeah that that's kind of how we think about it when you out of curiosity um are you having custom structured short opportunities or are you taking place are you taking part in short setups through uh traditional means whether like a Bitfinex or other margin exchange? Uh, so both, basically. I mean, you know, custom structure, nothing too complicated, basically just going to OTC desk and borrowing some uh, assets on an open term and selling them. Uh, nothing nothing too complicated. You know, there are some OTC derivatives and things that people are, are writing nowadays. Uh, you know, they're useful for various reasons, but we, we find that uh, you know, we, we also, being a US-based fund, don't have access to a lot of the margin markets or BitMEX or, for instance, uh, yeah. those those different kind of products, Deribit. Um, yeah. So we're a bit more restricted on the exchange-based margin trading. Um, so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that flow goes to OTC desk. Right. Do they allow you to uh, take a position on a on a Bitcoin basis, or are you usually having to take that position on a dollar basis? Yeah, I mean, you you can do both. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, with guys like Galaxy, um, they're relatively sophisticated, and they can basically, you know, if you're doing decent enough volume, they'll create any sort of product for any you, product you if want. they're making money from it. So that's the the beauty of uh, this world is that you don't have to be too big a counterparty before these guys are going to make interesting products for you if you want them uh you know it's not like being a hedge fund uh in the traditional space where you probably have to have over a billion dollars in assets before you could start creating these custom products so there's uh, more flexibility i would say relative to the size of of funds in the in the market yeah absolutely that's cool so uh i could probably talk to you the whole time about trading most of our episodes are about trading. I really want to get into uh, this DeFi stuff, and um, I'm sure some of this has to blend with what y'all have built with Wire. Um, but can you give us an overview first of uh, what's with the hype around decentralized finance? Um, a lot of this, the way I see it, kind of freaks me out. Like it seems like people are creating products that they don't necessarily know how hairy and scary they could get. Uh, if market conditions go against the structure of the product. So so what's the hype first? Let's start with that. So <clears throat> the hype, uh, I, I would say the source of the hype is is one of two things. Uh, one thing is that these this, this sort of uh, subsection of the crypto market is really very Ethereum-based, and therefore Ethereum people tend to get very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's something that they could point to and say Ethereum is working, right? And that... Everything that uh, we're doing here is not a total waste of time. So I think <laughs> that there's a bit of a, a bias around wanting these things to work, right? And that kind of leads into your second question. Uh, but uh, the, the hype is basically, you know, the, the concept of programmable money 
um, is really starting to come to fruition. And people have realized that basically you can build any sort of financial product that a bank would usually create uh, using a piece of paper and a lawyer running some kind of contract, right? Uh, And so we've seen a range of different products come to market. And the thing that people get excited about is that each different product can leverage the other products that are already out there. So there's this sort of ecosystem effect, right? Uh, One of the key products that come to market was MakerDAO's stablecoin, DAI. With DAI and with a stable unit of account within the Ethereum economy, suddenly, excuse me, suddenly a whole lot of other products become viable. So if you think about Augur prediction markets, if they're Mm ETH-based markets, then any bet on an Augur market basically becomes a bet on the price of ETH. But if you have a DAI-based market, suddenly that whole thing is viable, right? Um, If you have uh, DAI on Ethereum, then you can have uh, sort of DeFi-based margin trading because people have a a uh, you know a stablecoin that they can basically borrow and then buy more ETH with, which is effectively how you go margin long anything, right? Uh, there's there are these lending protocols that seem to work pretty well um, in terms of being able to generate a passive yield off uh, a whole range of ERC twenty tokens, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, and I think basically what you're seeing is that people are realizing that the each innovation that comes to this market that really works is going to improve the innovations around it and allow further compounding innovations to occur on top of it. Now, you know, if you're a, f- a finance person and you really sort of digest how this stuff is working, that seems really cool, but it's also really scary because yeah. uh, the smart contract risk of each of these applications compounds as they start to leverage each other, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's almost like a you know, in, in a way, it's kind of like the contagion effect that we saw with some structured products in the financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, or basically where something can go wrong in another country uh, in a product that you didn't really know existed and that can somehow materially affect your financial position. There's a risk that that things like uh, the Dow bug or the parity wallet bug are effectively seen in. DeFi protocols uh, and a lot of money is lost as a result. Um, so yeah, the, the the hype I think is somewhat justified. I would say uh, in the end, if you look at the gross numbers of how much money is flowing through these different applications and the amount of people using them, besides Maker, the numbers are, are pretty small. Although you know, for more basic applications like Exchange, like Uniswap, they're now doing decent volume, right? Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but uh, I know right when, it, um, right when it launched, it blew up. I was listening to the creator of uh, Uniswap talk to, I think, Laura Shin a couple of months ago, maybe. And it, I mean, it, 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 he was blown away with how well it was doing out of the, out of the gate, especially when so many DEXs uh, just aren't. Um, yes, it's interesting that, you know, if you think about why did Uniswap succeed when all of the sort of order book DEXs didn't, right? Uh, and I think it goes to show that, uh, you know, the, I think there are two dynamics there. Um, one of them, and this is a concept that I'm, I'm borrowing from uh, uh, Alex Evans at Placeholder, is that the, the, the Ethereum-based protocols that pull liquidity into one place tend to bootstrap more easily, right? Uh, so, you know, if, if, if everybody can effectively trade against one pool of liquidity, then it's easier to get that 
off the ground, if that makes sense. But if you mm-hmm. have a whole bunch of fragmented order books amongst zero X relays, for example, that you never get that base level of liquidity that makes the market viable in the first place. So it's easier, you know, make is another good example of, you know, basically pooling liquidity and getting a result or compound the the borrow market. Um, so I think that there's like a, a structural reason for why those kind of products can see success. But that said, you know, Kyber and Bancor were kind of similar models and they didn't see the same amount of traction. So yeah, it's it's an interesting case for sure. Yeah. And I don't want to dig too much into that specific product, but I was fascinated by how that one seemed to to take off. And I'll link the show that he did with uh, Laura because it was pretty interesting enlightening, and enlightening to me. I feel pretty cut off a lot of times from all the stuff that's going on in Ethereum land. Um, I don't know why. Are you... I mean, you seem a little less fully absorbed into the world of Ethereum. Are you a Bitcoin first kind of believer and then a, a Ethereum tinkerer? Or are you are you more bullish on Ethereum in the long term? So uh, I am I am bullish on the thing that I am bullish on that involves Ethereum kind of involves Bitcoin as well. Uh, so I think maybe my view is a little different. I tend to think less in terms of the particular protocol. So I think it's entirely possible that whatever is going on on Ethereum now moves to a different venue, a different network, basically, that is better suited to Some dealing with those kind of protocols and applications. Protocol. Exactly. Uh, or maybe it's it's one that has some kind of commercial advantage and the team behind it executes really well and steals all of Ethereum's thunder. It's it's early enough for all that stuff to happen. Uh, but at, at a higher level, I would say that the, the concept of crypto finance, which is basically you know building a financial system based on public networks, public key cryptography, one global tech stack that all financial products can live on that uh, have global distribution by default that are alive 24-7 that can automate compliance, speed up settlement, uh, you know, automate back office processes, kind of the, the things that people got excited about with like enterprise blockchain, so to speak, I think you might actually see a mix between those operational benefits and also like the network effects and liquidity benefits that you get from having a public network to introduce financial products that are fundamentally better suited uh, or, you know, fundamentally add value to users in particular cases. So like one example would be, you know, there is already a killer app on Ethereum that just hasn't received the necessary distribution yet, which is basically US dollar denominated saving, right? So right now, anyone in the world, it doesn't matter where they are, can be earning interest in US dollars effectively on the Ethereum blockchain and actually get a better yield than they'll get from any bank. So what's an uh, example of uh, how you would do that? What kind of yield you'd be looking at? So the highest yield you could get right now is using Maker's DAI and lending it out on either DYDX, uh, Compound, or Dharma. And I think the yield would be somewhere between 8 to 10%. Um, now, there are a lot of tail risks involved in doing what I just said, right? Um, we just saw that with Poloniex and Clams, and that was a fully centralized situation. Yeah, I mean <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting example. Obviously I would a say th- those but... those weren't the tail risks that I was thinking of specifically, although that that is a relevant consideration where basically 
all of these systems rely on the the loans being fully collateralized. And if the value of that collateral rapidly drops, you can effectively, uh, you know, the other side of your loan can go into negative equity, right? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of risks here, but uh, there are also risks around using the kind of, uh, you know, emerging market financial products that people use, you know, as an old, that would be using as a alternative to what I'm talking about with DeFi. You know, even if it's just, you know, there's some tail risk around using DAI and uh, crypto finance protocols to generate a yield, but there's also a sort of guarantee loss around holding Argentinian pesos. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's really in the context of having fewer quality options, suddenly products like this start to look very attractive. Um, So there are large swaths of the population in South America and Africa and Southeast Asia that would love to just be able to save in US dollars and generate a reasonable yield on that. And when I say, you know, market, I mean, tens or hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions of people would be interested in using this product. Um, And that's something that exists today, works today, but just doesn't have the necessary distribution into those markets. And I think that's something that you'll start to see over the next year or two. And that's relatively near term, right? So, you know, there are sufficient commercially oriented people in this industry that are looking to build that distribution. Um, You know, at the moment, a lot of these DeFi protocols are basically, you know, ETH heads moving their ETH bags around through different, you know, uh, trading or lending uh, application, which is not really interesting. But uh, yeah, the distribution piece is going to, I think, prove the value. Um, and the other, the other side of it is, is giving these people access to, even if it's just like synthetic versions of traditional investment products, whether they're US equities or indexes or whatever, it's pretty simple to basically tokenize the synthetic version of that, like Oracle settled derivative, basically, um, and package that up and sell it as a product in all of these markets where there's zero incremental cost for you to give that product to somebody. Right? Let's take a uh, pause on that because um, you're talking bringing on Argentinian uh, fiat. So assuming you can get fiat to Ethereum, then you open up yourself to this world of other products, uh, synthetic dollars, synthetic securities, <laughs> etc. What What is stopping uh, regulators from reaching across uh borders and saying, hey, you can't make synthetic versions of, of United States uh, fiat currencies and uh, United States regulated securities. Like what, isn't there, isn't there a risk there? Uh, I know that this type of stuff has existed in kind of shady ways for a long time, but uh, these aren't decentralized products or not, not very decentralized products like a maker or something. Like isn't there a long arm of the law that can reach out and try to put a squash on some of this? Uh, absolutely. So there are two sides to this equation. There's the US side and let's call it the uh, the demand side. So what would the US government do? What would the Argentinian government do? And obviously this is all total speculation. Right. Um, you know, the US government's not going to ban people from US financial regulations are built to do two things. One is to, you know, protect the US investor base. And the other thing is basically to allow the US to assert, you know, geopolitical control over the world, right? Like a big way that the US government dominates 
the global economy is through its dominance over the financial system, whether it's, you know, their whole ability to implement, uh, you know, sanctions or whatever on a country is basically hinged on their control over the financial system, right? To enforce OFAC restrictions, et cetera, is all based around their ownership of the banking system, basically. And this is not like a, this is something that, you know, if you watch the, uh, it was a few months ago, they had pretty much every big bank executive in front of Congress or the Senate in the US. And they were talking about this stuff very openly, right? That the US's power in the world is partly enforced by their dominance in the financial system. So any products that undermine that are going to face a lot of scrutiny. For instance, if Iran and Russia started evading sanctions by using Bitcoin, I think that would be one of the, the trigger events for the US to start restricting Bitcoin domestically. Um, and so the question is, to what extent do the open finance or the, the uh, DeFi products have the ability to infringe on those interests of the US government? I would say less so. I'd say Bitcoin or even things like Tether, I guess if DAI was bigger and more broadly used, it could fall into that bucket. Uh, you know, if, if they were being used to for terrorist financing or avoiding sanctions or money laundering and things like that, uh, I think you would see um, increasing restrictions beyond maybe what FinCEN, et cetera, already do. But, um, you know, these DeFi products are still pretty small. Uh, and it's yet to be seen whether they'll gain traction in that kind of gray and black market. Um, the other side of the equation is like protecting investors, right? Um, yeah. And basically, the law says you can build all these financial products, but if you don't sell them to US people, that's totally fine, right? So like UMA built their S&P 500 token that is not available to the US. Vail built prediction markets that are not available to the US, right? All of these sort of quasi-derivative things are effectively banned by the CFTC unless you get proper licensing. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean you can't build them in the US. It just means you can't distribute them in the US, right? Mm -hmm. So the US side of things, I think, until you start seeing the numbers are much larger and nation states are starting to use them in ways that the US doesn't like, that's when you'll start to see increasing laws. And they can definitely write those laws, right? Um, on the Argentinian side, if you're thinking about the currency aspect, <clears throat> obviously that's a very touchy subject because they've got their own currency to protect, right? They've got capital controls and all these things, right? Um, so the restrictions that you would see would be around capital controls, but really or you, it doesn't matter whether it's crypto or US dollars or gold or anything, you can never properly enforce capital controls. It's a, always a losing fight, right? Um, like just look at China. Anybody who wants to get money out of China can get money out of China, right? Like they have capital controls, they have a peg, they have all of these things, but- And there's you know, speculation that that helped fuel the Bitcoin run that we've had since 3,500 or so. Exactly, you know, there were ways of getting money out of China before Bitcoin, but one of the first use cases for Bitcoin in China was avoiding capital controls in, you know, 2015, 16. And that's kind of what we're seeing today. And there are more things that the Chinese government could do 
they could shut down the OTC market. You know, they already banned exchange trading and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, they could go the after banning, the, the OTC banning of those things didn't and, stop China from buying Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, laws can always be written and uh, things can always be banned. The question is, will those bans be effective? Um, and also, will they be in the interest of the individuals or consumers in the market? Argentina might decide that actually it's really beneficial to wealth creation if their uh, citizens have access to high quality US investment products, like just being long the S&P 500. You know, it's good for Argentina and the Argentinian government if the country becomes more wealthy, right? Um, so it's it's definitely a, a double-edged sword. And I think a lot of people in the crypto space, because they, uh, you know, there's a lot of cynical people in the space that think that not like a lot of value is, hasn't been built yet. And we're still kind of waiting to see true value creation and utility, so to speak. Uh, they start to think that regulators only view these technologies as negative for society. But as soon as these products start to add value, that turns around, right? And suddenly they become products that the government wants to encourage rather than discourage. Yeah, and I can see, I can see that, that from access to securities, like you're saying. I think what worries me from a perspective of the Argentinian government, if you're in an mm. inflationary crisis, then uh, your citizens having an easy way to further abandon your currency for uh, synthetic dollars or Bitcoin or anything that's not uh, Argentinian currency helps spiral that crisis. So it does, yeah. As I said, like you can't win the capital controls war because the, the thing is that the more you sh restrict, there's always going to be a price for buying crypto assets with fiat currency domestically, right? It's the question is not can they ban it or not. It's really what premium is it going to trade at. Is, sure. is the question because I can always accept you can always hand me a thousand Argentinian pesos and I can always give you some die no matter what right you can't stop people from doing that that's yeah. the nature of this technology so the more they restrict it really it's just going to trade at a higher premium uh, <laughs> but you you can't actually stop people from doing it you know in in uh, think about the way that local bitcoins work right the 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 chinese government basically replaced the exchange trading infrastructure with local bitcoins branded as okcoin or huobi with that bulletin board kind of peer to peer trading thing where you know you basically say i want to buy a thousand cny worth of bitcoin and it gets put into escrow and you know the person can uh, electronically send you the cny so you electronically send them CNY and they, you know, electronically send you the Bitcoin, but there's no central matching counterparty. So it's very hard to stop that from occurring. If they ban all of those sites, then people will just start using local Bitcoins there. Someone will create a version offshore and the Chinese government can then try and ban it through their internet filter and people will get to it through a VPN. Like, you know, it's, you just can't stop it. Right. Um, so it's a losing battle in that sense. I, I agree with that. And I've I've read some of the histories of how inflationary crises have played out before, um, like in Germany, for instance, uh, prior to mm. uh, World War One. It's amazing. But it's I mean, they still try to fight it all along the way, typically to try to shore up the currency in some way until they capitulate. Um, yeah, the one thing that they don't try and do is fix their physical debt position or like do anything that will actually solve the problem. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's it's a 
in 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 some circumstances like Venezuela where you go like right to the extreme it becomes evident that the people in charge really are just trying to extend a scam that they're pulling on a very large number of people right um and so because they've already got that mindset they're pretty much willing to do anything and use any force because they're they've already gone down that path right and morals and ethics aren't really kind of on their radar do you um, think it's, so you, i i would agree that like it it it's it's something that they will fight but it's not a fight that they'll ever win do you think it's a hopium or a real possibility that there's a country that kind of realizes the position they're in and before it gets out of control from a currency perspective they actually uh, they actually move to adopt some sort of uh, non-standard, non-fiat currency so, uh, for for <laughs> managing their own adopt, reserves. Like, like, you, yeah, we, we've got to keep tabs on what's technically possible, right? And right, right now, no country could run on any cryptocurrency because none of the networks can scale sufficiently to serve even a small country's commercial activity in transaction volumes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... I would say when it's possible, maybe, but it's not possible now. The other thing is like with the current model of how governments work and how their finances work, switching to Bitcoin, for instance, uh, really changes things because it basically means that you can't you can't really borrow money, right? Yeah. You can't run budget deficits. If you can show me like a large country that doesn't have a large debt position or run budget deficits, like I'll, I'd be quite surprised today. So I think what would have to change first is the, the structure of the government to make it basically cash flow positive. Uh, and then it can basically build savings in Bitcoin and possibly become very wealthy that way, right? Yeah, you but have to do it when your market you have is emerging. Is, so like sorry? when you're, you have to do it when your market is emerging. It requires a lot of foresight by a government. Uh, yeah, when they I have think funds if you were to form a new society, and, yeah, yeah, and it, if you were when to build people aren't in crisis somewhere, <laughs> yeah, I agree. It would be a challenge. I'm just trying to think of a world like what's what's an end game for some of this stuff, or uh, who are the adopters? Yeah. And <clears throat> I think one of the adopters that has really seemed to start coming around. Uh, might be the act, the finance industry itself to say, hey, you know, settlement on a blockchain is a lot better than this, you know, T plus two crap that we do with old yeah. janky databases. Um, maybe that's a, a scenario that could work. Even them, though, so, they all seem to be trying to landlock it and say, well, we've got, you know, we're going to do things on the on JPM coin or this or that rather than adopting open protocols. Uh, hmm. Do you think there's a chance that the, the open protocols can really work uh, or would do you think they would rebuff those attempts and just So if you look at something control? like, for instance, the public equities market where yeah. a lot of volume gets traded between a lot of counterparties and there's a lot of pieces of paper to settle yeah there's share uh, settlement at the end of the day that's all this i mean it's it's, it's a near mystery even to the people in the system uh, uh yeah I, I wouldn't go that far like people understand how these things work right um you know australia but, but, is a really good example that i'm particularly familiar with because uh there's only one stock exchange um they own the settlement system and they're actually the first major stock exchange to try and adopt some blockchain-based, uh, you know, effectively uh, post-trade system, right? Um, which is the digital asset holdings. They're, they're basically their first major customer was the ASX. Now, you can go and read about how that project's going. And by all accounts, it hasn't really gone that well, I think. Um, 
which basically my understanding of it is that the software didn't necessarily have the functionality that they needed to start. And then the spec ended up basically being fully centralized to the extent that there was basically like one validating node, right? Mm. And then you start to question what the system actually is fundamentally, right? Uh, So I think what that tells you is that it is that post-trade settlement from a stock exchange is a centralized process and there's nothing wrong with using a centralized system to deal with it, right? When I think these... From like a settlement perspective, it starts getting much more interesting where you're talking about products that don't exist on centralized. When I say centralized exchanges, I mean there's like one exchange per country, right? If you've already got a highly liquid, highly advanced thing like a stock exchange, you should probably leave as it is, right? Stock exchanges are pretty efficient they're very profitable businesses um there's not a lot that's broke with that model really like the 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 current architecture will bring settlement down to one day right like it already is in in australia and probably a whole bunch of places then it'll become same day and then it'll become instant uh it's just like a matter of time basically when i said that earlier about 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 saying they don't know how it works i more meant like let's say i buy a hundred shares of apple from e-trade or whatever like there's a process there and if i just say okay now give me my 100 shares like give, i want a certificate like people had in the old days like the process of bringing to terms the fact that an individual bought 100 shares of apple from some brokerage and then like bringing all that back and like creating the record of that there's settlement of who bought and sold shares what's going on at the end of the day all that's like a process that's going on within these brokerages and then between brokerages to make sure we haven't sold more shares of apple than exist or whatever you know those types of things um Mm. and like the mechanics of all of that seems complicated and very centralized and i wonder if some of that could like that could be a realm where i guess uh some form of blockchain technology could could assist like the yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the that thesis method. for enterprise blockchain but i guess what i'm saying is that if you look at what's been tried nothing has been a standout success in that area i think is is fair to say okay and that the 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 problem that's being solved is like if you think it's almost like a, the ultimate first world problem right which is where <laughs> yeah. like this system actually works pretty well there are big problems with the financial system, but post-trade settlement of listed that's equities is probably not that's, one of them. That's a point very well taken. Um, so dig in then to one where you do think it there's a lot of potential. It's basically everything else, right? Everything okay. that just exists <laughs> as as a piece of paper, right? Or in like a opaque OTC market. Um, you know, stock exchanges are expensive pieces of infrastructure, right? That it's not worth putting everything on that kind of infrastructure. But if there's existing public infrastructure, like a public blockchain, that also ha- gives you a lot of sort of tangential benefits uh, and you can use that at very low cost. Theoretically, if you're just talking about something that was previously a piece of paper and that didn't exist on any kind of centralized trading venue with advanced systems, uh, it starts to add a lot of value there. It's about like what, where you're coming from, right? Like the, 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 the base layer of technology that you're trying to improve on. You know, it's like when people talk about Web3 and making decentralized Twitter. It's like, what is, what, is there really that much wrong with centralized Twitter? Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's going to be much harder to improve on Twitter and Facebook with decentralized technology, just like it's going to be hard to improve on the New York Stock Exchange versus, you know, 
technology that doesn't necessarily exist at all, where you're building from a base of zero, right? And you're able to create a step change improvement in the way these uh, financial contracts are dealt with because they don't exist on advanced infrastructure. So yeah, I would basically say, look everywhere else. Look at what is currently clunky rather than what is currently you know, humming at a pretty amazing scale. So whether it's like uh, private equities, real estate, uh, you know, delivering synthetic assets to markets that don't have access, direct access to the US financial system. Like it's not easy if you're in an emerging market to buy the underlying US equities, right? It's, it's, you have to be a sufficiently large enough purchaser to make it worthwhile for all the intermediaries required to make that transaction happen if you're like based in Indonesia or wherever. You have to be a large purchaser to make it worthwhile because the cost of transacting is going to be so high because the amount of intermediaries between you and Indonesia and the stock exchange in the US is, uh, you know, there, there are too many middlemen, basically. If you can cut all those out, then you start adding a lot of value. Can we dig into the lending side of things for a bit? Um, sure. And I'll give you a hypothetical here. So let's say I'm a long-term Ethereum bull and holder. And let's say I've got 1,000 Ethereum, uh, but I have, for some reason or another, I want to do other stuff with it. Scenarios could be I want to buy a house and borrow against the Ethereum to do so. Or mm. it could be I want to be, for some period of time, dollar-denominated but not realize gains on Ethereum. Or maybe I want to be net short or I want to be net long and double down on my Ethereum bet. These are all scenarios where I may participate in a lending market, right? Yep. And how is how is this actually structured and how is it working uh, maybe differently than people anticipated? Because one of the things I've seen is it's extremely expensive uh, to operate within one of these lending mechanisms that have been created. Am I wrong in that? Uh, yeah. So it depends what you're doing and what side of the, the trade you are on. Uh, so if, if you were, for instance, borrowing ETH to short sell it, you would find that that would be very cheap. So the hedging scenario is not expensive. In fact, it would be materially cheaper than any centralized option. Okay. Um, to borrowing die is expensive right now because the main reason people are borrowing die is to get levered long eth so since the market's turned <laughs> and everybody wants to get levered long eth they're all borrowing die to buy more eth right uh, and that's how you get that sounds more... so dangerous to me well like... i mean it's 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 actually a better if if die goes to zero that's good for you right because you're levered long eth but you're also uh made money on the fact that you no longer owe anybody die because you can buy die for one cent or whatever. So the the risks are actually kind of unless the interest rate goes up a lot, but the the, the risks are sort of in the 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 ETH bull's favor in that situation, right? Um, the smart contract risk is probably in your favor. The die peg breaking risk is probably in your favor, etc. Um, yeah, but the the the, the APRs are expensive at the moment. Um, so interestingly, in, in 2018, the stability fees on the maker system were very low. They were 2.5%, half a percent. Um, and what I think that was a function of is that as the market sold off, people were risking off into DAI. So there was more demand for DAI in a bear market. Uh, and that meant that the stability fees had to be lower to provide sufficient supply to meet that demand. And it got to the extent that when we sold off in November, December, 
the um, inventories of die market makers basically went to zero because everybody was selling ETH for die. Um, and that in, since that's reversed, uh, you know, the dynamics has sort of shifted and the stability fees have come up a lot. But then this whole die lending market, you know, DYDX came online. And so now everybody's buying die to go along there. The yields on die went up. And now we actually see a lot of people buying die just to get the yield, right? So they'll go USD to die as like a savings product. Uh, and so you've seen incremental demand in die as a result of that. And now the stability fees are coming down again. When the stability fees come down again, you'll get more issuance of die. And then the rates in the secondary lending markets will probably come down as well. So I guess what I would say is that whatever's happened, whatever the situation is right now is pretty different to what it was three months ago and six months before that. And I can tell you in six months time, they're also going to be very different. So it's hard to see how these things kind of will end up at maturity. Uh, you know, the maker team wants to source a whole lot of collateral that has lower price correlation to crypto assets. When I say that, I basically mean bringing things in from the traditional space. And that might create basically unlimited supply of collateral. So then you can, the only limiting factor on, on the die float will be demand, right? And so if this US dollar denominated savings product has demand, you might see that there's a whole lot of die out there at, you know, relatively low rates. Um, and then maybe it ends up like that, or maybe it's always just used by margin traders and the rates remain pretty high. It's hard to know. Uh, I guess when I say it sounds dangerous to me, a lot, mostly just from a pure sentiment perspective. And um, it, I mean, what happens if the trade goes against all these people that are leveraged long uh, through Maker purely to, to be long? Like, Well, they get liquidated just like anybody else, right? The, the risk management properties of these systems are basically that if the trade goes against you, then any market participant can come in and liquidate your position and capture basically a premium on your collateral. So there's an arbitrage incentive within Maker, within DYDX, within Compound to basically encourage people to liquidate under collateralized positions. Yeah, so I guess the um, risk isn't necessarily to the system. It's more to the participants in the system that are using it in that way. Exactly. I mean, that's that's how it should be, right? Um, and it's no different to trading on BitMEX. Uh, there are some systemic risks, right? Uh, you know, if Ether went to zero tomorrow, that would make a lot of these systems insolvent. Just like if Bitcoin went to zero tomorrow, BitMEX would probably have some issues because their insurance funds probably wouldn't pay the amount of negative equity in the system. Um, so there are systemic risks for sure, but I don't think we have to be too afraid of people gearing up through these mechanisms. Because if you look at what happened to Maker in 2018, it launched at the start of the year when Ether was at $1,200. Ether's Maker's sole source of collateral. And its price fell by over 90% and the system never became under collateralized. People liquidated the CDPs as they became uh, too risky and the system worked. The arbitrage incentives, uh, you know, a lot of people made good money um, basically are being CDP collateral. Um, and so that all worked fine. Uh, and it's hard to, if you think about the size of that drawdown, it's 90% plus. If it worked in that scenario in a single collateral 
system. When it becomes multi-collateral and the systems are more liquid and there are less correlated assets in the collateral pool, um, perhaps it becomes even stronger. Uh, you know, there are other risks that build up as you do the multi-collateral thing. But um, it's, it's, there's definitely data to suggest that the risk management uh, system that all of these different applications use works at, you know, today's scale and probably a scale 10 times bigger but whether it'll work at a scale a hundred times bigger or a thousand times bigger, I think it's it's hard to extrapolate. Your business is to help uh, anyone. Let's say I have a website where mm. um, there's a token. I guess um, you help someone come to my website, put fiat through your system, your API, and then I deliver them tokens. That's basically what I'm able to do with your developer tools, so right? M- most of our partners aren't token projects uh like they haven't done an ico in fact most of the DeFi protocols haven't done an ico maker does have a token but it has a very good and useful and necessary token right okay so maybe my website uses ethereum in some way then that yeah so if if you have an application that interacts with crypto in any way and part of the onboarding process for that application involves people purchasing some of that crypto we can basically offer a fiat on-ramp that's baked into your application. Um, so what that kind of looks and feels like is the user has to, to do fiat payments, you need to KYC the user. Uh, so the user can go through basically an onboarding process that can either be natively integrated into your application using SDK or uh, there's like a pop-up widget that you can use that's pretty easy to implement. They basically put in some of their personal information um, we take as little as possible. Um, and once they've gone through that process, they can buy crypto with a debit card, ACH, etc. Uh, and you can do it all in a couple of minutes. Um, and basically what this product is about is allowing all the entrepreneurs in the space to you know, massively improve their onboarding process uh, to, to make it easier to have your first interaction with these applications. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty important because what you don't want to be doing is saying, oh, look, here's my application. Here's all the things you can do. Oh, and by the way, create a Coinbase account and buy some crypto and go through that whole process and then send it over here to your wallet and then start using it, right? Um, if you can do that whole process within your application, within one flow, then things start becoming a whole lot more viable. Is the user KYCing with me or with you? Uh, so with, with us. So, I mean, you're, you, you as the developer, you're providing some software. You're not a regulated entity. You don't have licensing. You don't have compliance stuff. Uh, you're not registered with FinCEN, et cetera. Um, so the KYC information is not really useful to you. Uh, you're also not dealing with the fiat because we're dealing with the fiat. We need to know who the customer is. We need to do OFAC check, do suspicious transaction reporting, all these kind of things, right? Um, so w- one thing that we sort of built uh, to try and reduce the amount of personal information that's being given out, like anybody who is a crypto trader knows the experience of giving all of their personal information to seven different exchanges to get KYC'd, which is not mm-hmm. necessarily something you want to be doing. Uh, one, because you have to worry about how that information is is stored. And, you know, anybody that uses crypto is a particular target for a whole range of different attacks that involve your identity, right? A uh, really basic one is is like 
sim swapping and like social attacks around that having everybody's personal information uh down to fine detail is certainly useful for doing those sort of things but um what 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 we basically built was that you can onboard with us uh, and we'll issue you a non-fungible token, an ERC721 token that basically says that you've been verified with Wire. And then you can use that same wallet at any other participating partner of ours and they'll basically recognize the token and allow you to transact without onboarding again. So it's sort of like a KYC passport that you can take around, which means that you don't have to constantly be giving out your personal information. Um, and what that will mean is that once somebody's onboarded once into this ecosystem, it's it's really a one and done sort of process, right? You're not re-onboarding and re-going through all these flows again and again and again. And we're able to reduce a lot of the friction there, create a lot of operating efficiencies, and you know also create some uh, extra protections for the end user. And when I receive, I give you $100 through your system, I KYC, I do all that. I get something back. Let's say it's Maker. Um, do I have $100 worth of Maker on a my own wallet, on a centralized wallet that y'all control? Where is that? Yeah, so it, it really exists? depends. It depends what you want, depends on the application. So for instance, some mobile wallets have wire implemented into the wallet and in that scenario, obviously, you're going to want the crypto delivered to your mobile wallet. And that's exactly what happens, right? Usually, these things involve crypto being sent to like a MetaMask address. Uh, I'd say the majority of the implementations look like that. Very few of them involve the crypto living in our own custodial wallets. Uh, I'm sure there are some examples, but that would certainly be the edge case. In the end, a lot of our customers are building dApps and DEXs and uh, non-custodial wallets and web wallets, um, all these kind of things. The whole point is that uh, the end user is custodying their own funds. Uh, and so that's reflected like that in the way that the fund, the crypto is delivered to the user. And how are you order matching that on the back end? Are you making money on the spread or uh, are you matching yeah, so other we'll, exchanges? Uh, it depends on the payment method and size and everything. Um, and uh, the, the, the fee structure also depends on who the partner is and the kind of volumes they're doing. But basically we'll take a spread and a fixed fee. Um, so yeah, it, it really depends. Like, so the fees can be anywhere between 25 and 75 basis points. But then if the payment method has higher fees, then you're going to wear some of those. Um, but it's, it's basically, you can think of it as like the, the fees that the, the payment method incurs plus a small spread and call it 25 to 50 basis points is generally what you'll be paying you know, for like a debit card or ACH payment. Um, so it's it's cheaper than something like Coinbase.com, like the consumer arm. Um, it's a little bit more expensive than posting a limit order on a centralized exchange. But, you know, to get paid out that USD, you also incur some fees there. So uh, in the end, it's, it's very competitively priced. Um, and the, the pricing of the actual assets uh, you know, it depends on liquidity and all these kind of things. But, uh, you know, our, our system will basically uh, make a market pretty close to, to the mid rate. And if I want to go back to fiat, do I do the same thing in reverse through the app, some any application on your network? So when, when you, um, if you think about the having the wire widget implemented in a third party application, 
Generally, that is for buying crypto. Uh, but when you sign up through that user flow, you end up with a wire account. So you can go to sendwire.com, log into it, send your crypto there, sell it, and then uh, get paid out to whatever payment method you want. Uh, and that that's like a US only thing at the moment. Um, but, you know, we'll expand overseas, uh, you know, once we've... The, the strategy around kind of market coverage is really a question of getting the process right for the particular market. You know, for every different geography, there are different requirements around what information you need to collect. There are different third-party services you can leverage to create a slick user experience, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, played or on Thido or something like that. Um, so the US experience now is pretty slick uh but to replicate that in other geographies you really need to localize the the flow so so that'll come basically when it's ready would you compare what y'all have are building and create have, have created would i would it be a pretty direct correlation to something like stripe uh like are you a merchant processor more than anything else or that i guess plus the crypto can you know the crypto bits that are confusing yeah so the the very generous thing that people call us sometimes is is stripe for crypto um which is, it's nice to be compared to them because you know stripes are awesome massive highly successful business uh there are definitely yeah. a lot of similarities right um the, the the merchant aspect so to speak is a little bit smaller mainly because the uh amount of activity in the crypto economy that relates to merchant processing is materially lower because really people use the crypto economy more as like a financial product for speculation still and now increasingly for things like uh savings and uh other financial use cases more than you know spending buying uh things off the internet and e-commerce situations or whatever uh, so we can do all of those things um but the, the market isn't really asking for it at the moment. But at a high level, yeah, what we do is kind of similar to Stripe in terms of the way that it's built, the ease of uh, developers integrating it. And it's just about basically uh, making the developer experience really easy so a wide range of applications can leverage our infrastructure. I'm going to end with this. This is a random hypothetical that I just thought of. Let's say I want to structure, uh, I want to create a, a portion of my own website where I create sample portfolios that I don't really have a part of them, but I'm structuring, hey, my friends and family are coming to me in this bull run. And I say, here are four or five different portfolio types that you could pick and choose from. And I may provide some you know, risk assessment or like strategies to say it's this or this style. Could I integrate SendWire directly into my web app? And they just say, yeah, this looks great. Boom. And they click a button and they kind of they're able to get that portfolio in some way uh, directly through me as a third party. Like I'm just a developer, got a web developer that can put all this together from a front end perspective. But then I kind of send it over to you, integrate with your API for actually receiving that money and getting all that crypto back. Is that the type yeah, of thing the that short you answer work is, with? Yeah, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, so people will do this exact thing using tokens and set protocol, which is like, Set yeah, protocols the with it. the protocol for like building that exactly what you're describing, right? Mm -hmm. Where you bundle up a whole lot of different exposure uh, into basically one parent token, um, and then you can basically uh, sell that as something as like a transferable asset. So it's the perfect kind of this is like what I was talking about before with the composability 
and the ability for these different DeFi protocols to leverage each other, you could deliver exactly what you're describing pretty easily with the existing technology that's out there. Um, and yeah, SendWire is a, I mean, Wire is a good, uh, that's a good example of where Wire can be used to, um, you know, it, in, in that particular example, you're probably talking about larger payments. So it would probably be like an ACH payment or something like that. So it look a little bit different to like the debit card widget and because people probably wouldn't be buying these things on a debit card, maybe, maybe not. But it's certainly something that we could do and would be interested in doing. And uh, no doubt some of our partners are thinking about that or probably building it already. Yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I looked at Set Protocol because I'm interested in I'm interested in providing access to something like this to people I come across when they ask me how to get involved and um, I find it a little simpler and I tried Prism back when uh, well whatever they're called Shapeshift came out with that as a beta product and didn't really work for what I was interested in but something like that I feel like would be really useful the reason I didn't the reason I didn't uh, end up working or doing anything with Set was because, if I recall correctly, at the time, their, uh, their little buckets of assets that you could put together were pretty restrictive of what they'd created, not what I can create for someone, basically. But it's good to know that that's the type of thing that would be possible. Hey, Lewis, what do you want to leave us with as a parting thought, uh, how someone may think about um, DeFi from a, maybe a, from a technology perspective, and then finally... Um, as an investor, most people that are listening to this are traders of some sort. Yeah, I would say um, definitely pay, pay close attention to what is being built. Um, it, it's it's very early, and the the utility that it can offer to people, the traders that are already heavily connected to all the centralized counterparties that are always introducing new products themselves, um, is is pretty limited still. But it's it's rapidly improving. You know the there were zero products in this space nine months ago, pretty much. And now there's a plethora of them. So I would definitely be paying attention to what is out there and seeing how you can leverage it. And the, the thing is that all these lending markets, etc., they're all floating. The rates always change. So opportunities are going to come up where you can save some money and take advantage of uh, changes in you know uh, the, the lending markets, etc., but I'd also say be very cognizant of the risks, that these things are not risk-free. There are a lot of tail risks that can occur. You know, these people do code audits and security audits and all these kind of things, but, uh, that you know, it's that's not a sufficient guarantee that bugs are still found in audited code um, and you can lose a lot of money uh, as a result of getting too much exposure to, to one piece of code. Um, so I would say pay attention, um, keep a close eye on the new products being introduced, but uh, also make sure that the applications you're using are relatively battle-tested. You're not using them one week after they've launched, etc. cetera. Uh, so yeah, I would say uh, pay attention, but, but be cautious. Thanks so much. Louis Abood, everybody can go to wire.capital wire with a Y or go to sendwire.com uh, to check out their product, which looks really promising to me. I hope you guys have a lot of success with it and uh, I'll be keeping track of this going forward. All right. Thank have you. Thanks one. for having me on. Sure thing. And we'll catch everybody next time. Cheers. Monuments crumble in the blink of an eye. The easy river just run dry
can barely 